Okay, so our text for this morning, and I'm going to use it really as a springboard into um, a survey of the first 11 chapters of the Revelation. I, um, I realize that Revelation is not an easy book. But I don't think it's as difficult as we all think it is. I think, um, you know, and I don't want to be uncharitable here, I think one of the reasons we find it difficult is because the predominant view that we've all been exposed to most of our lives, in my opinion, has made it difficult. And what I'm going to try to do this morning is make this as simple as I possibly can in order for us to really grasp what this book is really all about. And so that'll be the goal And again, I'm going to start just with the first three verses, Revelation 1, 1 through 3, hear now the word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would grant us by your spirit the wisdom to understand your word. We do thank you, Father, that you have opened our eyes to see the truth of who you are, the truth of the resurrection of Christ, that you've put your name upon us, that you've cleansed us, and you've made us your own. Help us, Father, as students, as children, to understand the great God who has saved us, that we might be able to worship you with full and whole hearts and serve you, Father, with every aspect of our being. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a 10-year-old, my parents decided it was time to take a cross-country trip from Los Angeles to New York. I was the only person in my family born in California. Everybody else was born in, in Brooklyn, so it was time to go to Brooklyn. So my two sisters and I, in the back seat of my dad's 1955 Fleetwood Cadillac, with no air conditioning in the middle of July, took off for New York. And I'd never, you know, I mean, I'd never gone. I'd never been out of the South Bay. And I was shocked when I realized how much of the country just didn't have buildings on it. I mean, when you, if you're raised where there are buildings everywhere, you assume the whole country is, is urban. I'm like, the whole idea of rural, you know, wasn't even something that ever entertained my mind, and so we're going across the United States, and we get into the Midwest, and I remember driving through the Midwest, and I noticed what appeared to be these huge fields of weeds, that's what it looked like to me, giant fields, all the same height, but they looked like weeds, so I asked my dad what I was looking at, he said, no, those aren't weeds, that's wheat, planted by farmers. But I remember looking at it because it all appeared so unstructured. 
as if the farmers had no rhyme or reason in terms of the way they planted the wheat. But as our car got to a certain angle when we were right next to the field, from that perspective, I saw these straight rows. Like There is, in fact, order. From here, it didn't look like order. It looked like wild. But when we got here and you could look down, you're like, row, 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 row. So you begin to see things a little bit more clearly. You see, from one perspective, the fields appeared random, as if they had no order. Or if there was order, you couldn't discern it. But from another perspective, those fields made all the sense in the world. Now, I have found this principle true in the reading of Scripture. That's why when you read your Bibles over and over and over again, they seem, it seems to be clearer and clearer and clearer because you're getting a little closer to that perspective where you see the order of Scripture. Seeking to properly read Scripture from a false perspective makes it appear random and even, to some people, senseless. I think this is a very common problem that the world has in their handling of Scripture. When you're talking to somebody who does not believe in Christ, they do not believe in the Bible, but they quote it nonetheless, and they'll grab a verse from here or there, and they'll wrench it out of its context, and then critique it as if it was just a random field of senseless words. That is something we see the world do all the time. Maybe another way to illustrate this, maybe you've heard the story about the six blind men who approached the elephant. So you have six blind men, and they, they go up, and there's an elephant. And one of them touches the elephant's side, and draws the conclusion that, well, this is a wall. The elephant is a wall. The second one touches his trunk and says, no, this is a snake. The third one touches his tusk. And he's like, no, this is a spear. The fourth touches his leg and goes, no, 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 this is a tree. The fifth one touches his ear and goes, no, no, you guys don't understand. An elephant is a fan. And finally, one touches his tail and goes, no, you guys don't get it. The elephant is a rope. You see, at some point, metaphorically speaking, their eyes need to be opened in order to see the big picture, to properly assess the portion that they're touching. They need to be able to back up and take a look at the whole elephant. I think we need that same approach when we read the scriptures. I think in order to properly grasp the smaller portions of the text, we need to get, sometimes get a, a bird's eye view. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Sometimes, you know, we need to get our hands in the dirt. Sometimes we need to view the field from maybe a crop dusting plane. And sometimes we need to get the view from 35,000 feet because you're looking at the same land, but from a different perspective. There may not be a book in the Bible 
where this approach is more critical than revelation. I dare say that the confusion revolving around revelation is that we simply don't understand the big picture of revelation. It was my personal experience in the study of revelation that I had my hands in the dirt, I was on my knees, and I was digging into the, the, the weeds of the revelation only at one point to look up and realize I am in the entirely the wrong field. Like, I've got all this stuff figured out, but I don't know where I am. I'm making good time, but I'm going in the wrong direction. Now, in order for us to avoid such a pickle, what I'm going to do this morning is fire up the jets, and we're going to go to 35,000 feet. And I'm going to make this, and I take, you know, I take responsibility as an instructor to be as clear as I can be. But you, you also need to engage, right, your intellectual engines to try to understand w- what I'm saying. And so that's the goal this morning, for us to get the big picture so that we really understand the small pictures when we get there. We have finished 11 chapters of the Revelation. That means we're halfway through. What has happened so far? What have we learned? Where are we in this book? Chapter 1. We read the first three verses. In chapter 1, the original readers are introduced to this startling prophecy that something very severe, and if I could say that if I was a yeller, I'd yell this out, something very severe would soon take place. Okay, just kind of etch that in your mind. The context at the very beginning is that there's a prophecy of something very serious, very severe, very traumatic, that would soon, quote, soon take place. So a guiding principle, at least in terms of the when will these things be, given at the onset of the book, is that the time is near. Two times in three verses. It will soon take place. The time is near. I have to say, for many readers of this book, that is all but ignored. If if we can at least kind of hold on to that a little bit, things are going to become a lot clearer. It's either ignored or it's really twisted beyond recognition. So let me just put it this way, and if this sounds ridiculous to you, so be it. But what we need to do in order to remain in the correct field is we must allow soon to mean soon. I know that's exegetically difficult for us. Now, there's an outline given in the Revelation in chapter 1, verse 19. And that outline given tells us basically that the first chapter of Revelation is the first third of the outline. 
So the outline is not in terms of numbers of words even, right? So you've got the first third of the outline is chapter 1, the second third is chapters 2 and 3, and then the third view, uh, portion of the outline is the rest of the book. So in this first portion of the outline, John, who's writing the Revelation, who at least in some sense, and this is kind of big also to point out, he is a companion in the tribulation. Most of us hear that the tribulation is this yet future event. But John is saying, I'm your companion in what? The tribulation. So at least in some sense, the, and it's, it's got the definite article, the, not just a tribulation, the tribulation in some sense is already happening. And he's instructed to write to seven churches in Asia Minor. I was just thinking this morning, so I haven't really put a lot of thought into this, but it's my own amusing. I think Revelation, you know how books in the Bible are named after the churches that they're written to, right? Philippians, Galatians, Colossians, and so forth. Maybe Revelation would be a lot clearer if it was named after the seven churches, although that would be kind of a long title. But they're the ones receiving the letter. So you've got to kind of go, it's written primarily, initially, for them. And so the entirety of the revelation has to have some application to the ones who've received it. But you see, this, the futurist view that all this is yet future, most of it has no application to them at all. I find that difficult in terms of properly understanding how we should read our Bibles. What we're going to see in just a second uh, is that these seven churches are in danger of corruption. Now, this corruption is either inward compromise or outward persecution. These, these churches, for the most part, are being so influenced by the, the heretics within it or the persecutors on the outside of it that they need to be warned. They need to be cautioned about the direction that they're going to be taking in a very ministerial sense. Things are hard for those seven churches. You know, it's funny, as I was rereading this and looking at what those seven churches are dealing with, and we'll get to that in just a second, so much of that is what we're dealing with. And to the extent that when we read our Bibles and we see Corinth dealing with that problem, or we see, you know, Philippians dealing, dealing with this issue. When we find ourselves confronted with the same issue, we learn from the letters written to them. And we should learn from the letters written to those seven churches when they are confronted with those types of difficulties. In this respect, the revelation is valuable to every generation of the church, not just the ones who received it initially, yes. And certainly not just the last generation on the planet at the end of history, but throughout the entire course of history, there's value to the things we learn in this book called the Revelation. And not only that, what they're learning also is, as difficult as things are for them, it, things are going to get hotter. They, when Jesus speaks to those churches, his message is not, things are going to immediately go smoothly. No, no, no. His message to them is things are going to become more difficult and you're going to have to persevere through this. But 
We're still in the first portion of the outline, so we're not there yet. Prior to the instructions on how to engage these difficulties, prior to the instruction on how to engage your trials in life, your temptations in life, prior to the heat that is going to come in your direction, and I think this is really a lesson for all of us throughout the history of the faith, they are apprised of some very glorious truths. There in the very beginning, before he begins to get, hey, let me tell you what's going to happen here. They are told that Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, has washed them in his own blood. And we don't want to study the revelation and stray from that. That needs, we need to be carrying that through the entire study of the 22 chapters, that the ruler of the kings of the earth has washed us in his own blood. And just in case the power of the Savior is underestimated, John is given a vision The only description, by the way, we see of Jesus in the entire New Testament, and I think it's symbolic, it's not to be taken literally, and this vision of the glorified Christ is so powerful that John falls at his feet as dead. Of all the angelic beings that John will see and write about, of all of the demonic monsters that John encounters in the Revelation, it is only the vision of Jesus that has this effect upon him. How wonderful it must have been for John, having fallen at his feet as dead, to hear the words coming from the lips of Jesus saying, Do not be afraid. I would have to say, you know, that, you know, we have the elders come up here, they do the call to worship, and then we do the pardon of sin. I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know if you're like, okay, let's move on to, I want to sing, or whatever it is you like most about the service. But I guarantee you this, if it were a judgment day, that would be your favorite part of the service. If your eyes were truly open to see the goodness and the severity of God, to hear your sins are washed away would make our first song probably a lot louder than it currently is. Chapters 2 and 3. Now we're moving to the second portion of the outline, and it speaks to the particular issues of those seven churches receiving the revelation. And again, like all other books in the Bible, there is application to any church or any Christian finding themselves in a similar situation. It could be the difficulties we're going to see. I'm going to just, you know, just peruse these briefly. But, you know, the difficulties at a macrocosmic level of an overpowering, oppressive government or the difficulties within the confines of the microcosmic church and your relationships with other people. Either way, when you read the Revelation, it should teach you about 
the call of God, the power of God in terms of the trials that we go through in this life, and it applies to every generation of the church. Generally speaking, what we see with these seven churches is that Jesus is giving them counsel on how to conduct their lives and how to conduct their ministries. And, you know, we see recurring things here. One of the things, I don't have in the notes here, but, you know, that we need to know is this, this uh, refrain continually from Jesus is, I know. I know your works. I know your difficulties. I know your poverty. I know. It's like Jesus is acquainted with his church. And I think that's an application that goes throughout the course of history as well. I think Jesus is acquainted with what's going on in our church. He's acquainted with what's going on in our lives both corporately and individually. We have a Savior who's very much with us. That counsel is accompanied by, generally speaking, and there's a little bit of distinction between the seven churches, a commendation, although they don't all get a commendation, a warning, and this is something that we see as a theme, a call to persevere, a call to overcome, a call to finish the race. Um, you know, you're not going to find a more self-deprecating figure in the scriptures than the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he's a, he calls himself a sinner. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He's constantly doing what he doesn't want to do. There's a humility. I don't think it's a false humility, a genuine humility. But the one affirming thing that he says about himself as he's penning his last epistle, is, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what Revelation is telling these churches. You need to finish the race. You need to keep the faith. I know things are going to be difficult. I know it's going to be tough. I know within and without, there are going to be people in your church who are going to make you want to leave your church. And there are going to be people outside of your church who are going to make you want to leave your church. And there are going to be people all over the place who are going to make you want to leave Jesus and quit following that first century, you know, Palestinian around. But what the call here is, is to keep the faith, finish the race. And you need to understand also, I think, we all need to understand what the alternatives are. We act as if we're going to leave Jesus and find something superior. I'm, I'm very curious as to what that is. Because if you can find someone superior to the triune God, I'm with you. But that just isn't going to happen. Ephesus. Ephesus may have been the Reformed Church of the Seven. They were hardworking, and they had, a, they had an eye out for bad teaching. But they had left their first love. So Jesus is saying, you need to remember. You, remember, you need to remember how excited you were when God first brought you in. Well, we, and we're not told specifically what the first love is. is. Is it the first love of God, first love of Christ, first love of one another? Or maybe it's all of them. But they had seemed to have lost, you know, the, the, the gusto of their faith. Smyrna was a church in the midst of difficulty, 
They were a poor church. They were in the midst of poverty. And what Jesus is telling them is more difficulty is going to come, but they needed to understand the temporary nature of it. It's going to get harder, but it's not going to be hard forever. Pergamos was a church in danger of compromise. The sexual immorality of their culture was making its way into their church, and it was making its way into their church via the twisting of Scripture. So what they were doing was they were taking the Scriptures and twisting them in such a way as to accommodate the sexual immorality of the culture. I I have no doubt that there was still a big cross on the building, while at the same time, they were engaging in things that are patently unbiblical and immoral. You know, we see this, we saw this issue with the church at Corinth, that they had incestuous relationships going on in the church, and they were boasting about their tolerance of it. We're We're a church that puts up with sin of all sort. People will say, you know, Jesus met people where they were. Amen. But he never left people where they were. Thyatira, similar to Pergamos, was a church very vulnerable to sexual immorality. They had become idolatrous to the point of boasting in the knowledge of the depths of Satan. You know, again, we're not told precisely what that is, but, you know, I remember as a young man going to different churches, and there were certain churches that were really into contending with Satan, and they had these, their specific ways, and their certain knowledge in terms of, it's almost like they, they had been watching old movies, or, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something, and they're like, well, we know how to engage Satan in our church. And it was, I have to say, initially as a young man, it kind of freaked me out. But as I got older, I started thinking, this doesn't seem to be in the Bible at all. Satan is a defeated enemy, and we're acting as if he's a co-equal with God, and he's not. The means by which we engage the enemy, when Paul says, do not give the devil a foothold, which is the, the Greek word there is tapas. It just means like a topographical map. Do not give the devil a place. And the counsel he gives in terms of the means by which we don't give the devil a place is that we don't give in to our own sinful inclinations. The moment you kind of go, look, at, I'm going to let my flesh ride rough rod over my life, now you're giving the devil a place. And that becomes a very dangerous path. But this church was They were almost a cult-like in terms of, no, we're going to engage the devil because we know the depths of Satan. Sardis was a church hanging on by a thread. They were apparently a very popular church. We're told that they had a reputation for being alive. But they were dead. I have to say, when I reread this, and I don't, I don't remember exactly what I said when we were preaching, when I was preaching through this. Talk about application today. I, as I sadly 
examine maybe the top ten ministries in our nation, they all seem like this. A lot of hoopla. A big building, a lot of people, but no salt. That's what they were. They had a reputation. You know, I, um, and I hope you do this too. I don't, a, a, a week doesn't go by, maybe a day, without me inviting somebody to go to church. You know, my neighbors, my friends, and the, you know, and so, you know, it's like you want to get them in, you want to get them in here, and hopefully they'll hear the gospel, and hopefully, hopefully I'll preach the gospel, and by the grace of God, their eyes are opened, you know. But I had been inviting one couple for a, a long time, and, um, they, you know, never, they didn't come for a long time, but then we were ha- having dinner with them. And in an effort to kind of assuage me and kind of go, you know what, Paul, we're, we're you know, we're, we're kind of moving in that direction. And I'm like, oh. and I'm going to, I tend to hesitate to use names, but I'm going to use this name anyway. They're like, we've been listening to Joel Osteen. And I, you know, I don't want, again, I don't want to be mean-spirited about this, but I don't think he's sound theologically. And I, I didn't know how to respond to the good news. <laughs> but, but one of our elders, we were having dinner, one of our elders and his wife was there, I don't want to mention who it was, but it was Scott Reeves. <laughs> and, and Scott, and I, so he, Scott saw me hesitating, and he's like, Pastor Paul won't tell you this because he needs to be a little bit more careful, but let me tell you about Joel. And then he went off to the races. <laughs> I miss Scott. Idaho. That was Sardis. Philadelphia was a faithful church. They had a little, we're, said, we're told they had a little strength. They kept the word of God and they would not deny the name of Jesus. So they're just the opposite, right? Not a lot of hoopla, not very rich, not very large, but they kept the word and they would not deny the name of Christ at a time and in a place where that would cost them a lot. Finally, we have Laodicea, which was a tepid church, a lukewarm church. And they grew comfortable just walking down the middle of the road. They had grown ignorant of their own sin, ignorant of their own need for a Savior. And the enemy did not need to tempt them or persecute them. The enemy just had to leave them alone and allow them to engage in their indifferent slumber. So these are the seven churches, and these are the various difficulties and temptations and persecutions that would befall them. So we've got the glorified Christ in chapter 1. We have in at the outline, second part of the outline, we have instructions to these seven churches to keep the faith and be aware of the temptations that would come in. So far, easy enough. Now we have the third part of the outline. And this morning, we're just going to go 4 through 11. 
So after the description of the glorified Christ, after the warnings for the churches to persevere and overcome amid these soon coming trials, the churches are given a prophecy of that which will soon take place. This prophecy, now this is what we have to understand here in order for this to be clear. This prophecy contains the judgment of the church's detractors. That's what they're hearing here. In this section, they're hearing that God is going to deal with the detractors of the church. Keeping this in mind, that if they fall away, they're going to find themselves on the receiving end of the judgment. You understand He's basically going, look, you need to remain the church because if you walk out of the church and you become part of this, they're going to be judged. I would argue that at the very least in 4 through 11, the detractors are Jerusalem. Jesus had already said they're the synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews and they're not. That's who's coming down hard on the church. But God is going to keep his promise. And I've told you in the past, you know, Dr. Bonson said that the theme of Revelation is the triumph of good over evil or the triumph of the church over its detractors. And I agree with that. But I would say another way to look at the Revelation is God keeping his promise that he made, that we read today in the call to worship, that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. His covenant people, God is saying, I am going to take care of my church. I am going to take care of that which is good. I'm going to take care of that which is right. I'm going to take care of those who will proclaim the truth. They will prevail. They will prevail through history. And those who come up against them will find that they are only going to last a little while before they are gone. But there's one kingdom that will endure. And God is saying, and I'm going to make sure that happens. So be part of the truth. Be part of that which is right and true and placards Christ. And he's saying, because if you're not, you're going to be part of the judgment. It's a great promise. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. In his great hymn, S.J. Stone, The Church's One Foundation, I think put it well. We read, the church shall never perish her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and strive to see her fail, against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. It is, I mean, I, I was thinking again, even this morning, if I were to put together a list of applications about the Revelation, like, how should this affect us? What is the big, so what, at the end of the sermon? So what do I do? One of them is to recognize that the promise is made to the church. It is the church that Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail. And there is a downplay of the importance of the church today. We're very individualistic. We're into being part of the invisible church but being part of the local church, being part of that visible local church is somehow pushed off to the side as if it's no big deal. But that's the promise. The promise is made to the church. 
And more times than not, very few times, you see in Hebrews, you, you, you see this uh, reference to the church being the invisible church. Almost always in the Bible, when we see the word church, it's in relationship to a local visible church. And yet somehow we're reading our Bibles today as if that's no big deal. As if I don't need to be part of that body where I know who my elders are because I helped them nominate and elect them. I, I know the people in the church who need my help and I know the ones who will help me. Like these descriptions of the one another that we see throughout the, throughout the New Testament somehow has fallen aside, but we've got to recognize that this promise is made to the church. And so a couple of things is you, you should be part of the church. And number two is your church better remain a church because some of those churches were in danger of not being churches anymore, right? When Jesus says, I will come and remove your lampstand, what is he saying? See, what well, you know, they weren't, by the way, the lamp. They were the lampstand. What's on the lamp? The light. Who's the light? Christ. And he's going, look at you are here as a lampstand to hold up the light. But if you're not holding up the light, I'm going to remove the lampstand entirely. Now, in chapter 4, this idea of God keeping his promise to preserve his church, it is given from the perspective of heaven. Now, we're going to kind of begin to look at things from a different angle. John, and by the way, John alone, friends, chapter 4, verse 1 is not the rapture. Chapter 4, verse 1, John and John alone is called to come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Now, I'm not going to put in my own words here, but if I were, I would say I'm going to show you the things which must take place right after this. But I think that's a safe way to read this. I don't think it's a safe way to read and I will show you the things that will take place 2,000 years after this. I think that's a very unnatural reading. I think all of a sudden these churches are being given a vision of the fulfillment of prophecy from a heavenly perspective. What is going on in the heavenlies in terms of my assurance that victory will be ours as a church? So in order to buttress the confidence of these mostly weak and smoldering churches, the throne room of heaven becomes the focus of our attention. I have to say, the display that we see of this heavenly host when we get into chapters 4 and 5, and by heavenly host I'm talking about you know, the 24 elders and the lightnings and thunderings and sea of glass and these daunting living creatures giving glory to God, right? So you're, you're getting this picture of something unbelievably powerful. I would say, if we could kind of go there on a regular basis, the difficulties and trials of this world would grow strangely dim. 62 times in the New Testament, we see the word throne. 47 times it's in Revelation, and 17 of those are found in chapters 4 and 5. Friends, there is to be no ambivalence in the minds of Christians regarding who determines the course of history. Who's in charge here anyway? 
John is seeing, and this would not be maybe as obvious as we tend to gloss over things, you know, he's saying, come up here, I'm going to show you the things which must come to pass. He's recording that, that word must in the Greek is a very strong word. It's not may come to pass. It's not I hope it comes to pass. These are things that will come to pass. It means necessary. These things will necessarily take place. Friends, number one, the world is not Satan's kingdom. And it's something you probably hear all the time. You know, this world belongs to the devil. And how can you say that when Christ conquered? We'll get to this in chapter 12, what happened to the devil when, you know, with, when encountering the resurrected Christ. But it is not Satan, Satan's kingdom, nor is the world random. There is the mighty hand of God that ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Even, even the moral choices of human agency is not somehow outside of the pale of the sovereignty of God. Does that, is that difficult for you to grasp? Good. How is it that my, quote, free will choices are ordained by God himself from eternity past? Well, they are. How is it I'm accountable to God for my choices when God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass? What did the Apostle Paul say to that? Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? What, what do we read? How does God respond to Job when Job's, Job's like going, well, wait a minute, you know, I mean, uh, it doesn't seem right, it doesn't seem fair, you're calling all the shots, and what does God say? He doesn't go, well, let me, by analogy, explain to you how this all works out theologically. What does he say? He's like, where were you when I created the heavens? Like opening a curtain. Where are you when the mountain goat gives birth? I mean, it's like the answer God gives is, I am God and you are not. And the fact that we're not willing to acquiesce before that is a sign of our own arrogance. We need to, rec- we need to let God be God. We were um, on a little vacation with um, the Currens and some other couples. I can't remember who they were. Because when, we, when you're with Anthony, you can't see anybody else at the table. <laughs> and there was, a ta- you guys, there was a table of three guys in this restaurant. It was in the desert. And they were talking loud theology. They were talking theology loud enough, not arrogantly, but loud enough for me to hear. And of course, I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm bad company with my group. And, uh, you know, eventually, somehow, I got myself involved. And one guy was kind of a liberal Christian. One guy was uh, a Mormon, and one guy was an agnostic. Sounds like a joke, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and, I was, you know, and they invited me to sit with them, and I'm sitting with them. And the agnostic, atheist guy comes up with a question you hear, you know, all the time, and that is, you know, so do you believe that God chooses who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell? Is that God's choice? And I looked at him because I, I knew, you know, it's hard, right? I go, I know. Who does he think he is anyway? (laughs) What do we say to somebody when they overstep their boundaries? Right? We say, who do you think you are? God? 
That's a pretty theologically sound question to ask. The assumption is, if you're God, that's a choice you can make. And Christians, we should recognize that. Now, not to get too far into this, I do think that we need to recognize human accountability and culpability and all of that. Nonetheless, what you do not want to put on the, your theological chopping block is the sovereignty of God. We read in Isaiah 14, 24, and 27, and I could have picked one of 50 or more passages to make this point. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Well, chapter 4 focuses on God, the Creator. Chapter 5 focuses on Christ, the Redeemer. Jesus, and Jesus alone, we begin to read, is the one who is able now to, intro- to open this introduced scroll. All of a sudden we see this scroll. The scroll, and that's one of the difficulties. People are like, what's the scroll? So I wrote it down, and I'm just going to read it because I don't want to get this wrong. The scroll is revealing Christ's righteous, authoritative, and active role in the course of history, especially as it pertains to judicial and redemptive events that will soon take place. Basically, the scrolls showing him as redeemer, showing him as judge, and him in control of the events that they're all about to experience. But I don't think that ended in the first century. In chapter 5, we see Jesus referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then he is described how? As a lamb, as though it had been slain. And let me just recommend to all of us that we not lose sight of either one of those images. The lion and the lamb. There have been times in history where the lion so prevails that the church becomes this violent war machine, right? Think Holy Roman Empire, right? Where, where evangelism was almost tantamount to conquest. You go out, hey, we're going to evangelize, you know, the Byzantines. How? Well, we're pretty going to take them over. Okay, that's the focus on, on the lion. Other times, I would say in my lifetime, the lamb so prevails that the church becomes flimsy, and dainty, marked by unbecoming delicacy and over-refinement. The church becomes a place where men just don't want to go. It just becomes kind of an emotional place where, you know, and I resist the word effeminate, but if you understand what I'm talking about, it just becomes a place where we come and get in touch with our emotions And Jesus helps us through the day, you know, and pats me on the head and tells me it's okay. I think think we need to not lose sight of both the lion and the lamb. So with the powerful, heavenly symphony of worship still looming, right? So that's still there. It ends, by the way, where you have the silence, but now it's still going on. Chapter 6 and 7 introduce the opening of the seven seals that are holding this scroll shut. 
right? So the scroll is history, redemptive, judicial, and it's got seven seals holding it shut. And every time a seal is opened, it's as it were a preview of the judgment that's about to become upon Jerusalem. One big way to understand this, and I did a whole sermon, I think, on this, but one of the ways for us to understand in order to get revelation in a proper perspective is the revelation is the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant. That's what revelation is about. It's not, I mean, chapters 20, 21, and 22 certainly is the second coming and the end of the age. But what we have, and I think we underestimate, is the fact that, and my wife today, she's like reading Acts and, you know, the Bible thing. She's like, so the last days, you know, you have this prophecy, you know, in Acts chapter 2, where Peter quotes Joel and says, in the last days, you know, you know the context here, right? They're speaking in tongues, and they're like, oh, they're drunk. And Peter's like, no, they're not drunk. It's early in the day. This, and he didn't point his finger like that, but I bet he did. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And then he says, in the last days, you'll have dreams, and the sky will turn, and the scroll will come, and the moon will turn to blood, the sun will turn black. That's the last days. What Peter's doing is like we are in the last days of the old covenant. The old covenant is coming to an end. It's obsolete. It's vanishing away. The temple's going to be destroyed. So if you were to say, well, what, what, you know, what is the heart of the revelation? The heart of the revelation is that the old covenant, which had become apostate, which had turned away, the old covenant where they chose to worship the temple rather than the one to whom the temple pointed was coming to an end. To put it in worldly terms, B.C. was becoming A.D., or to put it in more worldly terms, BCE was becoming CE. <laughs> For those of you listening on the radio, I just put my hands up in frustration and rolled my eyes at the BCE, CE stuff. In all of this, by the way, God would seal. So this judgment's coming. In all of this, God would seal, a different type of seal, he would seal his own from that judgment which would befall the temple and those who chose the temple over Christ. He's like going, I've got my 144,000, I'm sealing them, and I will protect them from the judgment that is taking place in terms of this ending of the old covenant. After this, that final seal is opened, and the trumpets of judgment are sounded in chapters 8, through 11, it is here that we see the undeniable and unquenchable, unquenchable testimony of the witness of the truth. You know, there's all this talk about the two witnesses. If you remember, what we, what, what we concluded was a lot of options, but what, what, you have two witnesses, which means it is certain, and it's compared to the lampstand and the olive uh, trees next to it, which means that it is without fatigue. It continues and continues. It is true and is without end. It appears for a short time to die, but it's revived. In all of this, in all of these great judgments, there might be this fear that they would have that the church is coming to an end. It's the post-Christian era. I don't like that term. You've heard that, right? Maybe for you it is. It's, there's no such thing as a post-Christian era. 
But they're like, oh, and it's coming to an end. And it's like, no, 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 it's temporary. It's the truth will be revived and it will endure forever. And then chapter 11 crescendos with these glorious words. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Friends, the king has come, and it is our responsibility to make that known. It is the task of the church to have those beautiful feet that preach the gospel of peace. We have to handle such a message, such a sacred message with humble hearts. At the same time, there's a confidence that we should have. We are to preach the lion and the lamb. At the end of chapter 11, we see that the temple of God was opened in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant was seen in His temple. That type of language to the Jewish reader would give the notion of sure victory. Remember we talked about this, right? The Ark of the Covenant, whether it's the Jordan or Jericho, if you had the Ark of the Covenant, that meant that God was with you and that success would be yours. But like all those things in the Old Testament, they point to Christ. It's not some gold-laden box that we are to put our trust in. All of that taught us of Christ. And we are given that promise in a deeper sense because we have the power of Christ. Lo, I am with you always. We have the power of His Spirit. We have the power of the Gospel. We have the power of prayer. And so the seven trumpets are now completed. I do pray that we kind of at least get the big picture here. Right? Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's washed you with his blood. He's glorified. Remain faithful. And let me give you a picture from heaven what is going to happen to those who seek to persecute my people. The truth. The light. That's the message in the Revelation. I think it's kind of simple. But we are called to be faithful in it. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would take counsel in terms of the wisdom of your Son and the instructions that he has given to his church, that we might ever, Father, herald the truth of the gospel, that we might walk in a manner worthy of that calling, that we would, Father, be truly your people and not swerve to the right or to the left, preserve your church. We do pray, Father, that you would handle in your own divine way those who take rank against your Son, that the truth might ever prevail and the gospel go forth throughout the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.